When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll call to you up through the tangles of forest, up where you nest in some melodious plot, poet of birds, singing sweet music of tears. Join with me now in the labor of lamentation, trilling from your trembling, tawny throat, as I sing of the sorrows of Helen and weep for the fate of Troy laid low. (laughs) 
Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, the one without the quippy descriptor. That was a quote from the chorus in their first real ode of the play, their first song, that doesn't come for over 1,100 lines. What a weird work of art. Well, 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 today we're finally, tragically, coming to the end of Euripides' Helen. Helen, now officially the longest series of episodes I've ever done on a Greek play, because I could both not help myself and, with every passing month, I get more obsessed with sharing all the smallest details with you all, and thus we get a four-part episode on a single play, because there's just too much. There's too much awesomeness to share, too many good quotes, moments, characters. It's almost like Greek tragedy is seriously fucking awesome and Euripides is the greatest of them all. But of course, I'm me, so I'm also getting already excited for the episodes that are to come. Because, well, do you realize how many of you have asked about the character named Zagreus? Yeah, a lot of you. And don't get me wrong, I know why. It's because of that Hades game that I'm sorry to say I still haven't played, but my amazing assistant, Michaela, has been playing and streaming to her heart's content. There's a link to her Twitch in the episode's description. But what have I always said about Zagreus every time you've asked? That I know absolutely nothing about him because he's part of this bizarre and fragmentary and not nearly as popular tradition of mythology in ancient Greek culture and tradition called the Orphic Tradition based on the Orphic hymns. That's right. Later this month, I'm finally going to touch upon the Orphic tradition on the podcast, including diving back into the most famous and not Orphic tradition-specific story of Orpheus, the origin of it all. That time he tried to save his wife from the underworld. But that's for next week. This week... Euripides, <sighs> Helen. And where did we last leave that incredible woman, that unique human whose story has been changed and adapted, shifted and morphed, transformed and skewed synonyms, whose story has been literally everything and nothing all at once? Well, Helen is in Egypt, and actually has been in Egypt throughout the entire ten years of the Trojan War and another seven years after it ended. All that time there was a creature in her place, a divine idea, a ghost, almost, an Eidolon. Helen, in Egypt, had a fine time until the king who helped her, Proteus, died and his son, Theoclymenus, took over. Theoclymenus wants to marry Helen, which is a kind word, given she wants nothing to do with him and is intent on waiting for her husband, Menelaus. Theoclymenus is a shit, but he has a pretty okay sister named Theonoe, who's a prophet herself. It's quite the family. Menelaus, Helen's husband and the guy in the Trojan War that I've spent five years hating and now have to wrap my head around liking? He arrived on the shores of Egypt, shipwrecked, with some of his crew and, for a time, the Eidolon of Helen. But when he ran into the real Helen outside of Proteus's grave, the Eidolon Helen took that as her cue to finally say goodbye. She drifted up to the clouds, but not before she gave a speech explaining that she was brought by the gods all along and was never the real Helen to begin with. Now, this couple who seriously love each other and 
are so happy to be back together, have to figure out a way to escape Egypt. But fortunately for them, Helen is smart and competent as fuck, something that Menelaus lacks, even if he does love his wife and isn't that refreshing in itself. Helen decides that what they'll do is... Helen will go inside the palace and cut her hair, change her clothes, she'll transform herself into a wife in mourning. Menelaus will be disguised, just look a little less shipwrecked than he already does, maybe put on some clothes and armor. It's up to the imagination just how clothed (laughs) Menelaus has been this entire time, but it's safe to say he wasn't wearing much. They'll both change, and in Helen's grief-stricken disguise, she'll convince Theoclymenus that she's been given the news of her husband's death, that now she must give him a rightful funeral, and that must take place on the sea. She needs a boat from him. Menelaus will be the man who told her, this lone survivor of Menelaus's crew, just another Greek, there to give the bad news. With all of that decided, Helen leaves the stage and the chorus sings of war, of mortals, of dealing with the gods. And then Theoclymenus joins the stage. This first introduction to this character, we are not a fan of Theoclymenus. He's a bit, well, you'll see. This is episode 176, the ancient heist you never knew you needed, Euripides' Helen. Theoclymenus joins the chorus on the stage at the entrance to his palace where he's placed his father, Proteus's tomb, so that he can see it whenever he comes or goes. And, well, from the very first lines he speaks, we learn what he's about. He's outside the palace with his hunting dogs and all his gear. He's got a Greek to hunt. He says that he's learned from past mistakes where he didn't always punish people with death, and he's going to make up for it. He's heard there's a Greek in town, and that Greek must die. Then he continues his dramatic introduction by noticing that Helen is no longer by Proteus's tomb. She's been there for a while, so he assumes that means she's been abducted, taken away from him, rather, where she already doesn't want to be. It's complicated, you remember? There's also some real othering going on here, though I wonder if Euripides is making a real statement on so-called barbarians, i.e. not Greeks, or simply inventing some exaggerated character in Theoclymenus. But let's be honest, it's probably some commentary that has origins in bigotry. He doesn't make Egyptians look good. Theoclymenus is having a time. He's there to hunt a human, and he's just found out that the human he's keeping captive in order to force her into marriage is missing. He's got a lot going on when he notices Menelaus. He notices Menelaus, a Greek, the type of person he's there to hunt. But then, alongside Menelaus, he finally sees Helen. But she's changed. She's in mourning. She's changed her clothes and her hair, meaning the actor had a full costume change, a wig and a mask change, the whole thing. Not something that usually happens. It's dramatic in itself. Helen begins to tell Theoclymenus why she's in mourning. 
She's deferential to him, too, making a real big deal of calling him master. She's trying to butter him up, make him really feel for her. She explains that it's all over. She might as well give up everything now. Menelaus is dead. She tells him that Theonoe told her this and that someone who witnessed it all, who saw Menelaus die, also told her of his fate. And, quote, May that man go where I would wish. (sighs) The translator here, Emily Wilson, by the way, has a note about this line. It's dramatic irony at its best. Theoclymenus hears this and he thinks Helen wishes that that man who told her of Menelaus' death would go to the underworld, would die for what he's told her. But she's really hoping he'll simply go to Greece because he's Menelaus. Did you get that? Did I have to over-explain it? Here we are. Helen and Theoclymenus continue to speak of what Helen has learned. He asks where that man is, the man who told her about Menelaus' death, to which she replies that, well, he's right here. Theoclymenus believes it, particularly due to that man's disgusting clothing. Why, he looks like he's been shipwrecked. (sighs) Yes, Theoclymenus well spotted. Here, I like to consider what exactly Menelaus looks like, where he's obviously been shipwrecked. There was a tweet going around a while back that was basically like he rolls up to his long-lost wife wearing nothing but a fishnet. And frankly, I'm here for it, at least with, with this Menelaus. Helen explains to Theoclymenus how it was that Menelaus died. Quote, a dreadful death beneath the salty waves. They speak of this wreck, of how this man, this Greek, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, survived the wreckage when no one else did. They were wrecked in the Libyan Sea, she explains, and this man who brought her the news was simply lucky. Sometimes it's all down to luck. Theoclymenus really grills her on the details here, asking how this man arrived in Egypt, where the fragments of the ship are. He asks about the Eidolon, what's happened to her. They speak of the fall of Troy, all for nothing. It's lengthy, this discussion between the two, but what it serves to show is just how prepared Helen is for this line of questioning. She is the mastermind of the whole plot. Menelaus is just kind of there, a body serving a purpose. But the woman has all the smarts, all the cunning. She's handling the whole damn thing, and it's awesome. Finally, they get to the question of burial. Did this man, this survivor, did he bury Menelaus? Theoclymenus asks her. No, she tells him. It's horrible. He's not been buried at all. And this is why you're in mourning? He asks her. He seems to think that now Menelaus is confirmed dead, that Helen's entire opinion on everything should change. There's no need to mourn your dead husband. She's got the king of Egypt right here. But no, Helen presses. She is in mourning. She loved her husband. This exchange between Helen and Theoclymenus is really something. He's a lot, this guy. She tells him that she intends to stay true to her husband, to which he replies, quote, 
Why do you tease me? He's dead. Let him go. He seems to actually believe she'll just want to marry him now. That all that stood in the way was Menelaus and not, say, the fact that he was trying to force her and that she didn't actually care for him at all. But whatever, I guess. It makes Helen's plan all the more simple. Fine, she says. Begin the wedding plans, then. But on one condition, you have to let me bury my husband. I'll marry you, finally, if you just let me bury my husband. Helen tells Theoclymenus, grasping at him in supplication. She's really selling it. She wants him to trust her, to trust that all she wants to do is bury Menelaus, and then it's all over. They'll get married and live, well, something ever after. He replies, quote, Can absent shadows get a burial? <sighs> Good line. But Helen has an explanation. She tells Theoclymenus about the Greek customs, mostly invented ones for this purpose, that it's customary, if someone dies at sea, to bury them in an empty cloth. Symbolic. It's closure. Sure, whatever, just build a mound of earth somewhere, Theoclymenus tells her. But no, she pushes. That's not how it works. They must bury him at sea. I like to imagine he lets out a big, petulant sigh right here. Seems within his character. Theoclymenus says, okay, fine. What do you need? And here is when Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, comes into play. Helen directs Theoclymenus to him, saying that she doesn't know everything they need. It's her first loss. But this man, this man from Menelaus's crew who witnessed it all, he will have the answers. And so Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, explains, basically having the chance to get everything he needs to make their escape happen, just handed to him. First, we must spill blood, a sacrifice, he says. Theoclymenus agrees. Anything they need? Any animal preference? No, no, no. Just something that needs to die. Gotta keep those gods happy, right? From there, they need a beer, something that will carry the body if there were a body. Then, bronze weapons, you know, because he loved war. Theoclymenus is here for all of it. Given what Helen is asking for and their hidden intentions, it's kind of hilarious how easily this guy is like, yeah, sure, totally. Let me give you literally any and everything you need to escape from me and even defend yourselves while you do. Because he says, quote, I'll give him arms worthy of Pelops's people. Literally, I'll give you weapons as good as ones you would have had at home. Whew. Next up, well, they need a ship. And of course, if you thought this was when Theoclymenus would put his foot down and say, hey, you know, this smells a little fishy. <sighs> fishy, get it? No, he doesn't question it. Oh, you need a ship? Cool. How far out to sea does it need to be able to go? Oh, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, says, we need to go so far out that you won't be able to see the ship's wake from the shore. Hmm. And why is that? Theoclymenus asks. Well, isn't it obvious? Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, says. We don't want any pollution to be washed back to the shore. Duh. 
In this case, there's no body. So anyway, that's fine. Theoclamina says you'll have a swift Phoenician ship and with oars too. He's literally telling them they can have everything they need to escape. Easy peasy. No questions asked. I am starting to love Theoclymenus for this alone. And it gets better. With all of this promise to Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, all in order to bury, well, Menelaus, Theoclymenus finally asks the important question. Does all of this have to happen with Helen? Can't you do it without her? No, he's told. It is the job of the wife to lay her husband to rest. And don't you want a pious wife? Oh, yes, yes, Theoclymenus says. I want a pious wife. Whew. She must take part, then, in this very sketchy act that definitely sounds like the perfect way to escape Egypt and get all the way back to Sparta without issue. Okay, fine, he doesn't say all that. He's not paying attention. He's naive. Straight up ridiculous. In any event, Theoclymenus simply agrees that he wants a pious wife. So, yes, obviously, Helen must partake in this ritual out at sea in a very fast ship. And for good measure, he promises Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, that he'll be given new clothes and food for his journey home, all in thanks for having helped Helen and thus helped Theoclymenus. And finally, to cap it all off, Menelaus now turns to Helen, once Theoclymenus has promised all of this, and he says, quote, Your job, young lady, is to let go the husband who isn't here and love the one who is. <sighs> Good one, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus. You're charming as fuck. Not so subtle, though. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From here, the chorus sings of none other than Demeter and her tragic search for her daughter, Persephone, abducted by the god of the underworld in secret, leaving her mother to grieve and search and grieve and search. Honestly, these choral odes are unbelievable. I'm thinking of releasing a short bonus episode that's just me reading them to you from a copyright-free translation, because the first one doesn't show up until line 1110, which is honestly absurd for a Greek tragedy, just so unique and meaningful. And that one and this next one tell such explicitly detailed and beautiful stories, metaphors for what's happening in the play, but unique stories unto themselves. Oh, they're so good. (laughs) But we must move on. From here, Helen returns to the chorus to relay what's gone on inside. And remember, these choral odes are often used to convey the passage of time. Let the audience know that the plot is moving along and we're about to be told of what we've missed. Helen tells the chorus that they've passed another couple of hurdles, gotten steps closer now to their escape. Theonoe, the prophetess and the king's sister, has helped them. She told Theoclymenus that Menelaus wasn't there, that he was dead. Then, Helen helped Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, she bathed him, and boy, did he need it. (sighs) There's some innuendo there, yes. She gave him fresh clothes, and now he has the weapons, too. But before she can finish speaking, she has to hush her voice and beg the chorus not to reveal her secrets. Theoclymenus is approaching. She tells the chorus, who are enslaved Greek women themselves, that if they help her now and keep quiet, she and Menelaus will escape and save the women too. Someday. Yes, she uses the word someday. They're definitely an afterthought here. 
But such is the role of the chorus. They're there to move the plot along. We can't think too much about, well, the real people they're portraying. Plus, Theoclymenus is back on the stage, and he's there to, just briefly, attempt to fuck things up for Helen and Menelaus. See, he's concerned. He's concerned that if she goes on the ship to mourn her husband and to pay her respects, as they've planned, that, quote, I'm afraid you'll get the sudden urge to hurl yourself into the swelling waves, struck by affection for your former husband. You mourn too much for him, though he's not here. Love the idea that she could instead mourn for him if he were there. Like, that he is dead or supposedly dead is kind of the point of the mourning. But not to worry, Helen's there to reassure him. Helen is incredibly, wonderfully good at convincing Theoclymenus of everything he needs to hear in order to let them escape. I love her. She tells him that she does need to honor him, honor Menelaus there on the ship, but that he shouldn't worry about her wanting to join him. What good would that do? But she adds for good measure that she asks the gods to bless this stranger who's there to help her. I.e., you know, her husband Menelaus, who's pretending not to be her husband Menelaus. They'll take any excuse to make a subtle jab at Theoclymenus's gullibility. Any opportunity to do a bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, like, Hey, audience, isn't this fun? It's Menelaus all along, and we're tricking Theoclymenus into making it as easy as humanly possible for us to be together and get the fuck out of Egypt. She tells Theoclymenus, quote, You'll find me just the kind of wife I should be when you've done this good turn to Menelaus and me. Yes, everything will turn out well. <sighs> One thing that Ash pointed out in her notes of this play, thanks to Ash as always, is that something that comes across here is the personalities, thoughts, and motivations of the characters. You can really tell they're real people. There's subtle joking, nods at the truth of what's happening that Theoclymenus remains completely unaware of. You can see the thoughts going on in Helen's head, her planning, her happiness at having Menelaus back, and the relief of having a good plan to get the fuck out of there. The way she keeps Theoclymenus happy, believing that she's staying for him, that she'll marry him. All the while, they do this with incredibly brilliant and even funny dialogue. Lots of irony, drama, just everything. The dialogue in this play is so good. And all of that keeps going because they have to finalize the plan here. Theoclymenus confirms to Helen and Menelaus that this man he believes to be not Menelaus will have complete control of the ship he's giving them. Complete control. Helen asks that he, that he confirm, double confirm even, that all of the crew of the ship knows to obey this man without question. They're really covering all their bases here, and Theoclymenus is making it seriously easy. He is a very trusting man, which is odd, given he's been given no indication that Helen has any affection for him. But then I guess that's the power of Helen's beauty isn't it? He even promises, quote, I'll be as good a husband as your first. If we didn't know that he had been pursuing Helen against her will, that she'd been forced to run and hide from him, I'd almost feel for the guy. 
Theoclymenus begins to direct his servants to prepare for the wedding, to bring gifts to the palace, to tell all of Egypt to begin the celebrations. Their king is getting married. Quote, may our marriage be admired and envied. <laughs> and then he says to Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, quote, and stranger, when you've gone to give these gifts to Helen's former husband, deep in ocean, then take my wife and hurry her back home. You are invited to my wedding feast. Then you may go back home or stay with pleasure. He says, take my wife. <laughs> Turns out all it took was Helen agreeing to marry him, and now he suddenly doesn't hate all Greeks after all. Menelaus makes a final call to the gods for luck, for help in escaping, just a plea to, for once, have things go all right for them. And with that, he leaves with Helen. They're off to perform the funeral rites for Menelaus. Or rather, they're off to make their escape from Egypt with all that Theoclymenus has given them. And he's given them a lot. And so the chorus sings. The chorus sings of the sea. They sing of Nereus, the old man of the sea, of ships that sail upon it, specifically the Phoenician ship set to take Helen and Menelaus away from Egypt, home to Sparta. They sing of dolphins dancing through the water, of the depths of the blue Mediterranean. They sing of Helen returning home to Sparta, of all the celebrations that will take place, of returning to their daughter, Hermione. And finally, they sing of Helen's brothers, the Dioscuri, the twins, Castor and Polyduces, the twins that make their home on Olympus now, with the gods, among the gods, as deities themselves, the twins have helped Helen before, too. Saved her from that menace, that horror show, Theseus. Quote, Saviors of Helen dash over the green sea waves and over the blue-gray surging of the dark salt water. Send fresh gusts to blow for the sailors and take from your sister her shame for barbarian beds the shame that she got through the strife on Mount Ida, though she never went to the city of Troy and the towers of Apollo. And then a messenger joins Theoclymenus on stage. Helen is gone, he tells him. The messenger tries to explain what's happened. Helen is gone. She's been taken away from Egypt by her own husband, Menelaus, who was there to bring news of his own death. They fled by sea. And, well, Theoclymenus doesn't get it. How did they get away, he asks. How did they get a ship? I mean, you gave them one, the messenger replies, though he does try to be tactful. And then the story is told. 
Messengers are always there to tell the stories of actions. Action that can't take place on the stage, but must be relayed afterward. It's a trope of Greek tragedy, and it's lovely. This messenger tells of the ship, of how the Egyptians who were sent by Theoclymenus to help with the funeral rites, how they prepared the ship for sail, how, when it was ready, they spotted some men on the shore, men who looked shipwrecked, how Menelaus called to those men, Oh, you poor men, your ship must have crashed. You look to be Greek. You should join us in our funeral for Menelaus. You've surely heard his name. And so those Greek men came on board, and the Egyptians remained silent. They'd been specifically instructed by Theoclymenus to take their orders from the man they didn't know was Menelaus. And they took those orders. So they set sail, and when they were far enough from land, they stopped for direction by this man who was leading them. This is it, he said, and prepared to sacrifice the bull that was brought on board. But he didn't sacrifice it for Menelaus for his funeral. Instead, he sacrificed it and spoke to Poseidon and the daughters of Nereus, to all the sea gods that he could muster, and he asked them to bring him and his wife Helen as he revealed himself to be Menelaus, that they bring them home safely to Greece, to the harbor at Naphtalia. With a final call from Menelaus, the Greeks who'd been brought on board turned on Theoclymenus's Egyptian men. A battle broke out on the deck of the ship, with Helen cheering them on. The messenger explains that he escaped. He scaled the side of the ship when the fighting started and he drifted in the water until he was found by a fisherman and brought back to the shore where he could tell Theoclymenus this dreadful, tragic story. They've lost Helen. She's already on her way back home to Greece with her husband, Menelaus, at her side. No, no, no! I've been caught by the schemes of women! is a quote, Theoclymenus's first words after this news. After, that is, the chorus steps in to say that they had no idea what was going on. He speaks of how he would have gone after them, but it's too late. He must face that he won't marry Helen. But, he adds, he can punish his sister, Theonoe, for her role in the deception. He goes to find her, but the chorus steps in. They seem to physically stop him from hunting down Theonoe, from hurting her. It seems unique to me that the chorus plays such an active role in this plot, let alone attempts to prevent a murder. They even offer to die for her. But they don't have to, because it's deus ex fucking machina time. Gods in the machine. The gods are here to finish things up, to tie a bow on this story of escape, this heist. Helen's brothers, the Dioscori, Castor and Polydeuces, deities sacred to Sparta, they arrive there on the stage. Only Castor speaks, which I think is Euripides personally doing me a favor because of how much I hate trying to say his brother's name. But both are there, probably hanging over the stage held up by the badassery that was the ancient Greek theater's crane, just hovering, floating over the stage, being fucking badass Spartan gods. Quote, Restrain your rage. Don't get too carried away, King Theoclymenus. Castor introduces himself and his brother, explains that they're the sons of Leda, brothers to Helen, 
He explains that this marriage was not meant to be. It wasn't in the cards. That Theonoe isn't to blame. She didn't wrong you. She only did what was right. What your own father Proteus agreed to when Helen arrived on Egyptian shores 17 years earlier. It was all destiny, Castor tells Theoclymenus. Then they speak to Helen, wherever she is on the waves of the sea, sailing off. They tell her that they will be there alongside her for her journey, to keep her safe and make sure she and Menelaus do return home to Sparta, safe and sound. They tell her that in the end she too will be a goddess, so says Zeus himself, and that even Menelaus will be allowed to live in the islands of the blessed, where the heroes go when they die. Quote, the gods do not despise those who are noble, although they suffer more than the masses do. Theoclymenus responds. He's been convinced by these gods. He tells them that he will accept that he isn't to marry Helen, that he isn't still angry even with his own sister. And then, for good measure, he once again announces how perfect and chaste Helen is, because for all her strength and personality, this play is about her chastity, how she held on and waited for her husband to return, how she stayed true. The last lines of the play are by the chorus. Quote, Spirits take on many forms, and gods create a multitude of surprises. Things we expect don't come to pass, and gods find ways towards the unexpected. That's how this story went. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for coming along on this very Euripidean ride. Fucking Euripides, fucking Greek tragedy, fucking Helen. I could go on and on, but I must stop for all our sakes. Gotta keep the show fresh, I suppose. But if it were up to me at this point, it would just be a Euripides show. Ugh. This play is so interesting on so many different levels. It's explicitly about Helen being a good woman, a pure woman who waits for her husband, who loves her husband and stays true to him. But it's also about the horrors of war. And what I'm interested in is it's about a strong woman who saves herself. Like Menelaus may arrive just in time, but he doesn't rescue Helen. He's just there to help. He's the sidekick. Helen rescues Helen. And she rescues Menelaus, for that matter. It's all her plan, her idea. It's she who convinces Theoclymenus. It's all Helen. It's all about the brilliance and devotion of this woman who is most famous for being silent and demure while a horror show of a war is raging in her name. A woman who famously is without agency in every other source, who everything happens to and because of. And now suddenly here's Euripides to take all that back and turn Helen into a completely different and spellbindingly unique character. <sighs> Fuck, I love this play. As always with these plays, huge thanks to Ash Strain for their research. She is always so immensely helpful and puts so much work and detail into their notes. I'm so appreciative. Also, one thing I realize I haven't actually said out loud, though it's been in the episode's descriptions, is that I've been working off a translation by none other than Emily Wilson. You remember Emily Wilson of the absolutely incredible translation of the Odyssey? Yeah, she's seriously good. And I've 
been absolutely obsessed with this translation throughout. It's so readable and accessible while also being so poetic and beautiful. Highly recommend. It's found in this big collection just called The Greek Plays, published by the Modern Library. It's awesome, and there are a number of her translations in there, among other great ones. If you're looking for just, like, one book of Greek plays, this is it. I'm also happy to say that on Friday, you're going to have a conversation episode about this amazing play. I spoke with C.W. Marshall, who literally wrote the book on Euripides' Helen. We talked back in April before I'd even read the play, and the conversation is basically why I knew I had to read it and cover it on the show. Little did I know that it would be four episodes because I am ridiculous. Anyway, we had such a good time and I learned so much about the background and context of this play, all the different bits and pieces, Euripides broadly, including some interesting details about his fragmentary play too, the Andromeda, which was produced alongside the Helen. Fascinating stuff. I just know you guys are going to love that episode. There's so much to learn about the production and background of Greek tragedy. So much that I don't know remotely enough about, so I'm always thrilled to have these amazing scholars on to share their knowledge. Stay tuned for that. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos, to editing and research, and so, so, so much more. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all so much. I am Liv, and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.